Colorado voters have changed a lot over the years, but there is one thing that stayed pretty darn consistent for more than a century. How do they feel about taxes? Apparently, voters don't like taxes too much. So let's go on a little tour through Colorado's history of tax increases rejected by voters. 1888, increasing the property tax rate to five mils, rejected by 92% of voters. 1932, increasing the tax on margarine from 10 to 15 cents per pound, rejected by 61% of voters. 1992, sales 1994, tax tobacco tax. 1997, taxes again. 2018, taxes for transportation again. Rejected. 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 <laughs> So listen, voters have occasionally approved new taxes on stuff like cigarettes and marijuana, but for decades, it's been just a lot of defeats for anybody who wants to raise taxes in Colorado. But taxes are where a lot of the money for the state government comes from, and lawmakers, a lot of them still want more money in the budget. So this year, they are really pushing into a new idea, trying something new, and we're going to explain that today. From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Andrew Kenny, And I'm Benta Berkland. Hey, Benta. Hey. Now everybody knows the Democrats have really been running the table in elections for the last few years, pushing out Republicans from all these different offices, really taking over the legislature. But they are continuously disappointed at the ballot when it comes to the money question. Yeah, I think that's been really interesting as we're following these ballot initiatives is that as Colorado voters in recent elections have been leaning left, those same voters have remained relatively fiscally conservative when it comes to taxes. Yeah, in Colorado, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights gives voters a lot of authority over tax increases. They have to approve it on the ballot. They have to answer these questions that are written in all caps and really emphasize the cost of the new taxes. And they tend to vote no, which has forced liberals and progressives who want to pay for more government services and programs to get creative. And so I think this legislative session, we're seeing different ways that Democrats who hold the majority in the legislature are embracing different ideas to raise billions of dollars for some of their priorities. Yeah, things like transportation and economic equity and a bunch of other stuff could all get a lot more money without voters weighing in. This could be one of the biggest years in a long time for changes to how the state gets money. So I called up one progressive advocate, Carol Hedges of the Colorado Fiscal Institute. I told her I wanted to talk about how Democrats were setting new priorities and paying for them and whether this year was different. And this is the very first thing that she said crazy idea to actually have priorities and actually pay for them rather than just have them squeeze out other things in the budget. Obviously, this will touch on a philosophical difference about whether it's a good thing to expand the state budget. But what are some of the things Democrats are trying to do here to pay for these priorities? Yeah, so let's start with taxes. A lot of what Democrats want to change has to do with the tax code. They want to find a way to raise a bunch more money from taxes without, quote unquote, raising taxes or, you know, technically raising the tax rate. So how do they plan to do that? They think they've come up with a way to raise about $400 million, and they would do it by changing some of the technical stuff, some of the more detailed stuff about who gets credits and other tax breaks. Okay. Basically, all the specialized ways that people cut down on their tax bills. And it's something that Governor Polis has been pushing for every year in his State of the State addresses. It means helping Colorado businesses grow and create good-paying jobs. It means eliminating 
tax loopholes that benefit the few and well-connected while reducing taxes for businesses and hardworking Coloradans. With so many policies, it really comes down to the details. Mm -hmm. So how are Democrats defining the few and well-connected? Well, they are attacking this on a lot of different fronts. For example, one of the business changes they're proposing is that insurance companies can get a pretty big break on their taxes in Colorado by having offices in the state. Mm -hmm. Democrats want to get rid of that incentive, saying it's not actually doing that much to encourage jobs growth here. In other cases, people can write off part of their tax bill for contributions that they're making to a 529 college plan, Mm -hmm. or they can write off certain capital gains taxes if the source of the capital gains in Colorado. And Andy, it's limiting some of this, right? It's not necessarily doing away with it in all these cases. Yeah, that's right. It's not always eliminating. In a lot of cases, it's limiting. And they're saying that it's really tailored toward high-income individuals, cutting off some of the ways that they drive down their tax bills. So if this legislation passes, and there may be a good chance it can pass with Democratic sponsors in a Democratic legislature, how significant a change would this be? So the first way I would look at it is in that historic sense. Democrats haven't really tried anything quite like this in probably a decade or so. If you go back coming out of the recession, they tackled a smaller bunch of tax deductions and credits because they were trying to come up with more money for the state budget during the recession. Yes, I remember that. I covered that session and I can't even remember everything they were dealing with. I know candy and takeout containers, but... Like tax breaks for that stuff? Yes. And I just, I remember the intensity Mm -hmm. of... That moment. And I mean, I think some of the hearings on that maybe went to like five in the morning. I mean, it was just very, very heated. Then the other lens is probably the amount of money that they're actually intending on collecting. It's about $400 million in additional money that come to the state by eliminating these various deductions and incentives. That's a lot more than they were able to get through the last round of deductions that they did a decade ago. And if you add it up, it's equal, I think, to about 3% of the state's yearly tax revenues, which doesn't sound huge, but when you're talking about a whole state budget, is a fair amount. Yeah, that's a good chunk of change. So (laughs) what do Democrats want to spend it on? They're saying they want to give most of it effectively to lower-income people and small businesses. You may have heard at the federal level, they're talking about this child tax credit. They also want to fund a child tax credit at the state level, which because of the way it would work, would effectively be cutting a check for several hundred dollars for each child that a family has, depending on only for people under a certain income. Mm -hmm. They want to amplify the earned income tax credit, which is another credit that really uh, goes to lower income households. And then they also want to exempt small businesses, a lot of small businesses, from some of the taxes they pay on what's called business personal property. They have to pay continuing taxes every year on all the stuff that they own for whatever value it's worth. They want to just eliminate that tax for a lot of small businesses. I'll be curious how this compares to the last time Democrats tried something like this on a smaller scale because it was so contentious. Are you planning now to be covering this till the early hours of the morning in the next few days and weeks? Not quite the early hours of the morning. The two tax bills went to the House Finance Committee the other week and... You know, looks like they were in there for four or five hours. That's not exactly three in the morning. That's 1030 at night. So for whatever reason, maybe it's because there's so much other stuff going on. Maybe the politics have shifted a little bit. But there's not quite that laser focused opposition yet from conservatives. You know, what's interesting is I was talking to a conservative who said that 
some fiscally conservative folks out there aren't theoretically opposed to closing loopholes and, and things like this. They're not vehemently opposed. That, that doesn't mean they agree with everything in this bill. But as a concept, they're OK with it. Yeah, you know, it's curious because a lot of conservatives like a flat tax and a ton of tax credits and deductions that make the system more complicated are the opposite of a flat tax in some ways. But when I talk to Michael Fields, he's a conservative organizer who generally fights for lower taxes. Yeah, what he said was he could get on board with some of the ideas here, especially trying to benefit lower income people, lowering their tax burden. But he also argued that Democrats were starting to mess with really complicated stuff that they may not understand. I'm sure the Democrats would differ on that. (laughs) And also that they shouldn't just do it for the sake of raising revenue. I think if you're a conservative, you may want a flatter tax structure, but you don't necessarily want more tax revenue going to the government. So, Andy, who are the main sponsors or people in the legislature driving this? And is it a pretty broad swath of Democrats? Yeah, this is a pretty diverse group as far as Democrats go. Your sponsors are Representative Emily Sirota, Representative Mike Weissman, Senator Chris Hansen, Senator Dominic Moreno, all of them behind these tax bills. When I think of Representative Sirota, she's from the more progressive wing of the party. And then Senator Moreno chairs the powerful Joint Budget Committee. So he has deep fiscal knowledge about the state and is working across the aisle a lot. Yeah. And the sponsors told me that they had been working on this for quite some time. And that this was a well-researched, like, uh, big package that they want to pass. And you add in Governor Polis and his support. And I think Mm -hmm. that that means it seems like a pretty straight shot, right? You never know what can happen, but it sounds like it, yes. And and I wouldn't say it's a complicating factor, but there are some time constraints because the legislature under the Constitution must end June 12th. Legislative leaders are hoping to end earlier than that, but there's a lot of things that still need to move through in these final weeks of session. Let's talk about another big bill Democrats want to get across the finish line, also something they've been working on for uh, ever, almost, (laughs) um, transportation. And I know you and our colleague Nate Miner have been looking at that closely as it's moved through the Capitol. Yeah, totally. That transportation bill fits right into this discussion because that's one that involves a ton of money, billions of dollars, and they haven't been able to fund it at the ballot box. Voters may want roads and trains or whatever, but they don't approve the taxes for them. And so now Democrats say they have to embrace a different route. And that route is fees. So just explain what we're talking about here. Like, What would we see fees on? Yeah. So you would see fees like a couple extra cents fee on a gallon of gas that you buy, an extra fee on food delivery, on an Uber ride. Fees kind of spread out across all these different things that you do with the transportation service. And by the way, a fee is a lot like a tax, something you pay to the government, but it's special because it's linked to a specific activity and the money goes to a specific cause. Those fees aren't covered by Tabor, don't require voter approval. And so Democrats are using them. They're putting them on all these different activities and planning to use the money to pay for transportation needs. So we were mentioning earlier with the tax bill that some conservatives may not be on board with the bill necessarily, but are okay with the concept of eliminating tax loopholes Mm -hmm. and tax breaks. I think it's pretty safe to say that conservatives are strongly opposed to using fees as a way to, they view, get around the taxpayer's bill of rights. Because for a fee increase, you don't have to, in most cases, take that to voters for approval. Yep. 
the the criticism is that this is just like a tax. It's an extra cost on residents of the state, but it's going through a different mechanism and lawmakers are just trying to get around the ballot box. So I asked Carol Hedges. No, I don't think it's intended to get around it. I mean, Tabor is written in such a way that explicitly says certain things require voter approval and certain things don't. And it really is driving the way we finance government to be an increasingly fee-based government. I'm not sure I think that is necessarily the best way to do it, the most equitable way to do it. But I will tell you, it is the way that is specifically preferred in the Constitution. I do really want to get back to the equity component, because I think that's a big part of this But before that, I think we do have to point out in the most recent election, Colorado voters said they wanted to weigh in on fee increases as well. So voters approved a ballot initiative that's going to require voter approval for fee increases. So, Andy, when you're looking at this bill that increases fees, why isn't it triggering voters having to approve it? So that new power that voters decided to give themselves over fees only applies in certain situations involving the largest fees and the creation of new enterprises, which is complicated. We won't get too far into it. But basically, there were a lot of exceptions in it that you could just design your way around it. And that's what Democrats are kind of doing just so they don't trigger that. Obviously, they don't want voters to have to approve this. Yeah, because there's a strong case that voters wouldn't necessarily. And then, you know, so it's, it's kind of a catch-22. Carol Hedges is arguing there that this is the only option left to pay for what voters want, whereas conservatives have some evidence that voters don't want this either, but it's not clear how to pay. Yeah, it's interesting. And then Carol Hedges also mentioned she doesn't know if this is the most equitable way to to fund transportation. You know, fees are generally regressive because they're the same for everybody, regardless of income. Do you think Democrats are having any heartburn over this? Because the focus of the session for them has been to build Colorado back stronger in a way that's more equitable. Yeah, I think it's a ton of heartburn. It's it's definitely not their preferred method. It's government by having people pay out of pocket as they go about their lives and try to buy these services that they need, which is really not preferred. Carol said that in the long run, she still wants to pursue a more meaningful like structural reform. Like They still want to get rid of Tabor if they can convince voters to do that. They still want to create a progressive tax structure. But for now, they're basically trying to live with fees and and try to spend the money in a way that it (laughs) reverses the inequity of how they've collected it. One big criticism I've been hearing is that Democrats are trying to increase fees when the state is relatively flush with money. Hmm. Uh, The budget is infinitely better than people projected. We're filling these huge shortfalls. And on top of that, we'll be getting billions of dollars in federal money coming to the state. Right. And the response we've heard from Democrats and people who want more government funds is that that stimulus money is one time Mm -hmm. and that we don't know what will happen in the future So when they talk about transportation, they talk about building a sustainable revenue source, something that will go for years rather than just the windfall we've got right now. But what is the latest you've been following that on what we're getting and and what the state is spending that on? Well, there's a lot of things still in flux this session, but something that lawmakers need to address before the legislature adjourns. So Colorado is slated to receive nearly $4 billion from the latest federal COVID relief package. Mm. And the state's taking a different approach for this federal relief. It's trying to be more collaborative. And so Governor Polis is working with lawmakers and they also had these hearings across the Hmm. state to get feedback. 
I talked to Senator Dominic Moreno, who we mentioned earlier chairs the powerful joint budget committee about what some of the priorities would be for spending this money. Lots of interest in investments in behavioral health, lots of interest in investments in housing. Um, and then I would say lots of interest in investments in workforce development. We are not going to see specific bills before the session ends. Yeah. So Moreno says what they're trying to work on now is setting up a bill for what's going to happen next. So creating a fund for the state to receive this money. And then Moreno says there should be interim committees over the summer and fall with lawmakers and then experts on certain policies to try to thoughtfully figure out how to spend the money. We don't have to spend it immediately. Some of it could be saved. Some of it could be spent sooner if there's some emergencies that we still need the money for. Uh, No one wants to rush to do this. It's possible there could be a special session in the fall or lawmakers could address it in January when the next legislative session begins. I mean, this is a substantial infusion of dollars for the state. And I think it requires really thoughtful proposals. And I think with these bigger issues like behavioral health, it'll be really interesting to follow the policy discussion that accompanies an influx of $4 billion and how the state does want to invest that in the long term. And I think there's bipartisan support for just really finding the best approach and not rushing to any decisions here. Yeah, I think overall, it's going to be a really interesting time for the state budget, as much as I can actually say that, as much as anyone finds that interesting. There's a ton of new money right now, and there's appetite among Democrats, again, to find new money and to spend it. Andy, since you do find it so interesting, if you want more work to do, I'm quoting Republican Senator Bob Rankin here, who serves on the Budget Committee. He has said multiple times, this has been so extraordinary. Somebody needs to write a book about this. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Give me a book deal. Well, we always like to end these episodes with a moment in the legislature that made us stop and say, wait, 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 what? what? Benta, have you got ours for this week? I do have one for this week, yes. And we'll play a little clip here from Next with Kyle Clark on Channel 9. He he captured this. I actually wasn't on the, the House floor at this moment when it happened. So as soon as you step away, then there's that wait, what moment. But it was during the final recorded vote of a bill that expands Colorado's universal background checks. Okay. Folks, this doesn't happen very often in this chamber, but sometimes it happens on important things. So I I happened to have my computer open a moment ago, and I reached up and pressed what I thought was the no button, but it was the yes button. 1298 was a bill that I was opposed to, and I was opposed to it on a lot of different reasons. And I got up here and spoke against it, said that it was a bad idea, said that it was something that we should not be doing at this time and intended to vote no and mistakenly pressed the wrong button. So I move that the House reconsider House Bill, make sure I'm saying it right, 1298. Members, I'm going to encourage a no vote. I understand and appreciate your situation. And we'll take this moment to remind us all that on third readings, we really should have our computers closed and our phones down and paying attention. Wow. That last person we heard was House Majority Leader Denea Eskar. So she's the one who would have had the authority to say, okay, let's redo this vote. So the House Minority Leader, Hugh McKean, can switch his yes vote to a no vote. Wow. That is some bureaucratic drama. It's one of the bills that would add violent misdemeanors to the category of people who cannot purchase a firearm for five years. And so Second Amendment supporters, gun rights advocates have been very opposed to the bill. And in fact, 
McCain's vote has been an issue of contention. And, and these are some people who never wanted Hugh McCain to be the leader of the Republican caucus. Like and, gun rights advocates? You know, in the first place, yes. But uh, Rocky Mountain gun owners had it on their Facebook page uh, just prior to us recording this episode of Purplish. Huh. Taylor Rhodes was talking to a former Republican state lawmaker, Stephen Humphrey. So in my opinion, there's two things that, that drove him to do this. Either A, uh, it truly was a mistake and he's, he's incompetent, or B, it was truly showing his true colors. Well, I really don't think that it would have been on purpose because it's not like they needed his vote to pass this. And then why would he have then gotten up and contradicted himself if it wasn't a mistake? I guess I was a little surprised, and this doesn't happen hardly ever, that the majority leader didn't redo the vote, but maybe it's kind of like, you know what, if, if you got that wrong at, at that moment, it, you have to kind of live with that decision. Yeah, just, she said no backsies. Right. <laughs> I could see someone in the future, you know, you could go back, though, through the record and look at the vote and feel like, oh, that passed with bipartisan support. Yeah. Well, and they, they stuck him with that on his record. That is it for this week's episode. We'll be back in your feeds next week. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleague Benta Berkland. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Benta Berkland. And I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. This is Purplish from CPR News. You can look at the kind of historicness of it, historicality, in, in two Historicality. Ways. That's definitely not a word.